0: Hi, this is Mel Fulton, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Literati Glitterati. Championing stylish wordsmiths and sterling conversation, it's a weekly book show that loves a good story, well told. Literati Glitterati is broadcast live on Triple R each Wednesday from midday till 1 pm. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. It's a delightful thing to be here. I'm broadcasting to you live from the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri Warung people, and I pay my deepest respects to them and to, of course, Bunjil, the great creation spirit. It's a big show for us this week. We've got Charlotte Wood and Amanda Laurie, two giants of Australian literature, speaking about their latest works today. I'm absolutely thrilled to have them both on the show because, in a way, they're kind of companion texts. They're both in possession of this sort of clarity, of purpose this sort of meditative sense and they both have a way of telling a story not only with the words they put on the page but also with the words that they kind of leave out both stories speak to place they speak to memory they speak to grief they speak to a sense of reaching for a higher purpose both books ask a question that you know I think we can all we can all relate to that question you know What happens if we just sign out for a bit? Is it ever possible to just sort of to just run away for a little while? Very important, very interesting question. Good discussion happening. Charlotte Wood and Amanda Laurie on the show. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up the Triple R website to find out how. It's my great pleasure to introduce to you our first guest on Literati Glitterati this week, Charlotte Wood. She's a writer that really needs no introduction, but I'm going to do one anyway. She's the author of 10 books, 7 novels, 3 works of non-fiction, and the recipient of multiple prizes, including the Stella Prize and the Prime Minister's Literary Award. Her latest book is Stoneyard Devotional. It's about a married woman who abandons her life and marriage to return to the small town of her childhood, Monaro in New South Wales where she joins a small religious community. This woman is not religious. She doesn't really know what prayer is and seems to have arrived at this strange place almost by accident. She lives a quiet, secluded life, meditative and simplistic, largely inward, until the outside world comes barging in and forces her to reckon with some big questions about goodness and hope and forgiveness and to confront her grief. This is a pre-recorded interview with Charlotte from when she visited us at the Triple R studios a couple of weeks ago. I do hope you enjoy it. Let's get stuck in. Maybe we can start by talking about the title of the book. Sure. How did it come to you? So the title... Stone Yard Devotional
1: came very slowly, actually. It took me a long time to get the title. I actually knew I wanted the word devotional in it quite early. And a devotional, the sort of definition of that is a, it's a Christian sort of thing. It's a sort of a day book or a journal with a prayer for each day, right? So in my book, the narrator doesn't believe in God, she's an atheist, but she's living in this kind of religious community. And she's sort of writing a diary to herself, certainly at the beginning of the book and it, then it sort of fragments and just becomes a sort of internal interior kind of narrative, I guess. But I liked the idea of the devotional as she's not offering prayers for each day, but she's offering kind of observations and wranglings with her own beliefs and ego and but observations of of the world around her, the place in which this book is set. So the devotional part made sense to me quite early on and... Gradually I came up with Stoneyard. Stoneyard is the name of a paddock at the monastery where this book is set and I liked the the toughness of that that pairing of words and I also liked what it evokes, you know, a place where workers cut stone and it felt to me like this narrator is really cutting into the hard ground of her own old beliefs, old hurts sort of unearthing and reburying things that she has been troubled by or confused about for a long time. So I just sort of like the way those things went together.
0: Yeah, um, I love that. Thank you. I think there's so many things I want to ask you off the back of that, but I think I'd like to ask you a little bit about, I mean, that title is so, in a lot of ways, it's quite spartan, there's a militancy or a discipline or something about it that's very evocative and that's very present in the novel. There's also a something sort of spooky about it as well. This to me is, it's very much like a gothic story and I wanted to ask you about the Australian landscape and what it is that lends itself so well to a gothic tale.
1: Um, it's interesting you use the word discipline. I think that's right. The life that My narrator finds herself living with these religious women, even though she's not religious. It's a very disciplined, very ordered life. I mean, one of the things that sort of appeals to her when she stumbles into this place is that there are no decisions for her to make. Everything happens the same way every day, the same order of... It's a highly ritualised existence. It's very rhythmic and almost hypnotic in a way. But it is a very Spartan kind of way of life they don't you know the vows that nuns take a poverty chastity and obedience you know a life of great simplicity I guess and the landscape of the book the book is set in a place called the Monero in New South Wales which is where I grew up and the narrator grew up and it's a very bare sort of landscape it looks like a very stony landscape enormous skies very spacious I can't remember which poet it was. It called it the lunar landscape. Some of it looks like the moon. You know, it's mm. just treeless and bare. But it's also incredibly beautiful. And I'm not sure that I think of it as, as gothic, but there is a very kind of, um, I don't know how you would describe it. There's a mouse plague that arrives mm. in this place, and that is really, you know, it's horrifying to the narrator and to everybody who lives there, and they've got to deal with this plague of mice in this very uh, rugged kind of landscape
0: let's talk about the mouth plague <laughs> I mean and the the extraordinary violence and these terrible rituals that your narrator and the women at the monastery have to go through in terms of kind of disposing of these we're talking many 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 mouth mm. straps we're talking being able to hear them in the walls mm. you know at one point which I still shudder when I think of it your narrator goes to put her shoe on and finds a furry shaking object mm. in it you know it's mm. it's a very felt kind of terror, I suppose tell us about tell us about <laughs> writing it
1: <laughs> I know it's a strange thing to put in a book about a nunnery, but while I was writing the book, there was a big mouse plague in New South Wales, not actually in the area where this book is set, but further north and a friend of mine lives on a farm out in the central west, and I went to visit her in the middle of this mouse plague only for a couple of days and only because she swore blind that there would be a bedroom that I could sleep in that the mice could not get into. And it was really, it was very confronting. Mm. Um, The thing for these women is confronting in all kinds of ways. And one of the biggest problems for them is a kind of moral problem in that the way they live is an ethos of doing no harm. You know, they don't eat animals. They don't kill anything. That's part of their kind of way of living. And yet, they are forced to kill these mice. They don't want to at the first. They sort of think, oh, well, we'll just let the chickens out and they can chase them and, you know, we'll secure the food better. And But their farmer neighbour says to them, you have no idea how bad this is going to get and you have to take action. And soon enough they discover that they do have to because if they don't, the mice will, I mean, they will eat the building, you mm. know. And they do, when I went to see my friend she said we, we can't use the dishwasher because the mice have eaten all the electrics of the dishwasher. They eat like concrete footings of buildings. I I can't understand how they can actually keep reproducing when they're eating these things that surely should not be eaten. But and then there's this sort of mass, you know, execution that these women have to undertake, but it's a sort of it's the tide of this plague that is so disturbing and unsettling and it's they live in this place To get to sort of stay away from the world, but they can't stop the world coming in at them. Mm. And that's one of the kind of, I guess, literary functions of the mice in this story. You know, the stuff that I put in there is all things that people have had to do. And, you know, there's at one point the narrator goes to town to buy some more mousetraps and she's going to pay on a credit card, but the the guy says, Oh, the F POS thing isn't working. And he holds up the cord of the machine, which has been eaten. And that's directly from something my friend told me, but there's something also symbolic and very deep in our responses to plagues I think, and there's also the kind of biblical evocation. the story is set you know in contemporary times and oh, in the recent past when uh, the pandemic was raging outside this place they're not affected by it you know immediately, but there's you know, there's this greater plague going on around the world and then the mice plague is another kind of... One of the things I th- think it's there for, it's sort of... I wrote it in without really understanding why, but... but one of the things the pandemic showed me is that all of our certainty just went up in smoke um, about what we thought we could control. And the ma- the mouse plague is another example of this, the kind of uncontrollable natural world kind of fighting back in a way and sort of showing the hubris of of human society that thinks that we can control everything about our world when we clearly cannot.
0: And that we think we can remove ourselves from difficult situations and thereby not be held accountable for them. And I think that what this novel does extraordinarily well and that, I mean, the tautness of the writing and its restraint is so remarkable. But you have this person who has got all of these forces reckoning with them stacked on top of each other. There's the global pandemic, there's the mouse plague, there's this surge of memories that she cannot deny, Mm. even though she has come to this place in a way to deny them. Mm. She's got people from her childhood and from her high school who keep appearing. There are literal bones Mm. in, you know, in what they describe as the good room of the house from a sister who who has met a horrible end there are all of these things sort of stacking up around them that cannot be denied you're listening to a triple r podcast discover more podcasts from triple r exploring science technology food books social issues politics and more to listen hit up the triple r website or your favorite podcast platform this is a really inward novel in that when you read it in in a sense you know, in a plot sense, very little happens, but it prompts you. I think it cuts so close to the bone because it's a very human thing to want to run away or remove yourself or bow out of a difficult situation Mm. for a little while. Mm. And I certainly can relate to that. Mm. And that is what, you know, your character is experiencing. And several times she says, not only is she not a religious person, but that she's a person who's sort of given up on hope.
1: Mm. That's why she's there. She has worked as an environmental activist, and she has had a major crisis um, that sort of sent her to this place out of a kind of animal instinct more than anything, and that crisis has been a loss of hope and a loss of faith in her ability to do anything positive to address the climate catastrophe. But it's also a kind of existential crisis for her in that she knows that Her loss of hope is dangerous for other people. And there's a scene that she recalls having a drink with a young co-worker and she sort of confesses her loss of hope in what they are doing to this young woman and she sees the effect that it has on this young woman, that it's like an assault. And she kind of knows, I've got to get out of here because I am going to infect other people. And she says at one point that she's read that Catholics believe that despair is the only unforgivable sin. And she said, I think maybe they're right because it bleeds and it spreads and it's malign. It's harmful beyond the person that it's affecting if it pushes out into the other people in the world. So she's sort of... She's grappling the whole time with this tension between these two sort of mantras that she observes early on. One is, action is the antidote to despair, which she has always believed and lived her life by and the other opposite of that is first do no harm and she's torn between these two polarities I guess where you know action is the antidote to despair except that she has been acting all of her life and it hasn't worked in the end against her despair and then she finds this place where these women who live a life that she thinks is very weird in the beginning mm. and sort of like pointless she 's thinking what are they doing out here in the middle of nowhere, except that she 's very grateful that they offer kind of refuge mm. to people like her who just sort of come there and are left alone mm. um, and she finds that very moving and she respects them, but she doesn 't really get anything about their life until you know there 's a bit of a narrative gap, and then we discover that actually now she 's living there and she 's been there for some years, but she 's constantly in a sort of tussle with herself about what is an ethical way to live, between these two sort of guiding phrases, I guess. And then she looks at these women and she thinks, well, they are doing no harm to anybody. And in fact, when I was working in the world, every time I, I moved, I caused destruction, you know, to the planet, to res- slurping up resources and creating garbage. And but then, as you say, she, you know, soon enough, the outside world comes in. And one of the people who brings that outside world in is a woman called Helen Parry, who's referred to by one of the crankier nuns as that celebrity nun. (laughs) And she's she's a kind of force of nature. She's an activist to her bones. She fights for justice around the world. And her presence there is very disturbing to them because she is everything that is the opposite of what they are in Mm. terms of their approach to doing good in the world. You know, and she kind of, you know, she's, she sort of despises them, really. She just thinks, well, it's all very well for you to sit around here praying, but what is that doing?
0: Yeah, it's so interesting. And then the next layer that sort of complicates that and sort of illuminates why she is the way that she is 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 this backstory because Helen Parry went to high school with the protagonist and she was bullied mercilessly and attacked in a horribly violent way. And everybody allowed it to happen and felt this extraordinary disdain for this Mm. woman. But later when the protagonist asks her about it, she almost denies it completely and it poses all of these interesting questions about cruelty and about if there has to be, I suppose, the way I interpreted it, was does there have to be a perpetrator and a victim Mm. and this sort of duality and if you you deny that in any way or disrupt it in any way, what happens, Mm. you know, and that sort of plays with this idea of how do you live... A meaningful life? Is it possible to do no harm?
1: Yes, and Helen Parry is a person who is a troublemaker, you mm. know, and she's always been a troublemaker, you know, as you say, when, when young through absolutely no fault of her own, but she is one of those people, especially in a country town, who has been sort of shunned for whatever random reason that somebody becomes a scapegoat or a receptacle of people's need to despise someone. We, we seem to need to have outcasts and we kind of, for whatever reason, choose somebody, they're the outcast and everybody knows it. Mm-hmm. And the narrator is thinking back over her youth and her childhood in the town and kind of remembering how brutal it was, not to her, but that she was part of the brutality you know, to other people. But the things that make Helen Parry this amazing figure in the world now are the things that made her an outcast when she was young. You know, she'd never backed down. She'd never, she never yielded. She wouldn't surrender. And she sort of just stood her ground, made herself heard. She was punished for that as a young person. But now those are the things that are admired about her. And I'm interested in the way that people who really do change the world are so tough, you know, they have to be so independently minded and resilient. And my narrator kind of remembers a few other like smaller incidents of people who are kind of dissident in some way, Well they just resist the social order in whatever small part of the world, you know, or society they're in. And she says at one point, I've noticed that people who really resist the status quo Quite peaceably accept the state of being reviled. That they sort of know everybody hates me, but
0: oh well, I stand my ground. I find that
1: amazing. The courage of those people is amazing.
0: On Literati Glitterati, that was the amazing Charlotte Wood talking about her latest novel, Stoneyard Devotional. It's out now through Alan and Unwin. Do grab a copy from an independent bookshop or pick it up from the library. It's a wonderful read, quite extraordinary, and asks huge questions and really makes you sit with them, you know. It's a very special book. Coming up very shortly, we're going to be hearing from Amanda Laurie. She'll be talking to us about her brand-new book, The Conversion. This
1: is a podcast. From Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how.
0: It's my great pleasure to introduce to you our next guest on Literati Glitterati today, Amanda Laurie. Amanda is the author of nine novels and her previous novel, The Labyrinth, was was awarded the Miles Franklin Award. Her latest novel is called The Conversion and it is out now through text publishing. Welcome to the show, Amanda.
2: Hello, Mel.
0: It's wonderful to have you here. Amanda, I loved this book so much. It has this incredible quality that Charlotte Wood's book has too – where it's told with this sort of wonderful simplicity, a clarity of purpose. It sort of made me feel like looking into a clear body of water and dropping a rock in it and watching the ripple effect of that rock. I've had that same feeling after reading the book. I read it about a week ago and these questions keep coming to me and rolling out and rolling out. So thank you. It's a huge achievement and I have so much I'm excited to ask you about. But firstly, Can you tell our listeners, what is the conversion? What does that title mean to you and what does it say about this novel, this work?
2: Well, it's a term used to describe the contemporary phenomenon of the selling off of churches, which is quite big now and fascinating. I mean, obviously it interests me. And so people talk about they're going to buy this church and they're going to go convert it into a home or a restaurant or a bowling alley or a nightclub or something. So it's going to be converted from one thing into another. But then, of course, conversion also resonates in the mind as a possible religious conversion. Mm. And I wanted the title to be ambiguous so that we wonder if some character in the novel is, in fact, going to undergo a religious
0: conversion. This book follows the main character, Zoe, and her partner, Nick. They have bought and converted several properties throughout their sort of relationship together and Nick is very very keen on buying this church in a small town that is becoming gentrified it's a coal mining town but it's also very quickly becoming people are making wine there people are are making gin a lot of people from the city are moving out there and Zoe is not particularly keen on this conversion and something happens and Nick dies suddenly and she finds herself compelled to buy this property and to make her way there. And the book is very much about the spaces that we inhabit and the way they affect the way that we live our lives I suppose like architecture and buildings and homes as sort of places where we store our memories, places where we define ourselves, places where we work out who we are and how we want to live. Can you tell us a little bit about what fascinates you about architecture and about these spaces?
2: Well I've always been interested in the idea of home you know, Where do we feel at home? Why do we feel at home in a particular space? What makes us feel at home? And almost always we find ourselves in a house at least once in our lives but often several times where we don't feel at home mm-hmm. and we set out to remodel the house. And the whole cult of renovation, I mean, is at its peak now. When, when I was a child, I can't think of anybody who renovated. I didn't know anyone who had a second bathroom. And Hugh Mackay, the sociologist, tells a wonderful story about being at a dinner party and sitting next to a very charming, middle-aged, well-educated woman who, he said, talked all night about the problems of installing her second bathroom. And he said, what's happened to us? You know, how did this come about? <laughs> what a time, you
0: know,
2: Well, you know, it's kind of, we share in it, though. We can kind of make fun of it, but we all share in it and we all are in some way, within our limited means, want to create this perfect space. And Zoe's husband, Nick, is the kind of character who interests me in life. He is someone who believes in the possibility of perfection. He's a psychologist and a therapist, but he's also a practical man, he's very skilled. He believes he can take this church by the scruff and he can make of it what he wants. And Zoe, who's a retired solicitor, is much more pragmatic and thinks, no, 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 this church is a special thing and it is what it is and you can't change it. It's a particular kind of space designed for a particular purpose and it won't work. So they have this argument about it at the beginning of the novel. This is not spoilers because this is all at the beginning of the novel. I've also had a lifelong interest in architecture which relates to this question of home because we have so much bad architecture and we all have this experience of walking into buildings that feel like dead buildings, into a room in a house, even our own house, that feels like a dead room, a dead space. So I've always wondered what's going on there, you know. How does this happen and how does it affect us? How does it shape our psychology? Um, And Nick, the psychologist, believes in this very strongly. He always begins a therapy session by asking his client to draw the house they grew up in because he thinks this will tell him a lot about them. And then he gets them to draw their ideal home and this will also tell him a lot about them and it'll save on time and save on words, as it were. So all these questions kind of come together in the novel and this there's a kind of hidden guru in the novel who's the radical American, well, he was English to begin with, architect Christopher Alexander. Mm. And I've read Alexander for years and he has fascinating theories about space and how space influences our psychology, how it shapes us, how it makes us who we are. And there's even a couple of conversations in the novel that reference his work.
0: There's this motif or an idea that Zoe keeps coming back to in the novel is how to balance the space that she's living in, which is an old church, the verticalness of it and the fact that it's reaching to the sky and it's reaching to the heavens with our own human desire and need to be earthbound and to be members of our community and to be looking out. There's this constant tension between seeking, running away and hiding from what is happening as that idea of coming into a church and feeling safe against what's happening outside and trying to engage with the world and trying to engage with the people around her and trying to face perhaps I'm putting things on her, but her rage, I think, and her pain and her grief and all of these questions that are coming for her. And it seems to me like a fascinating way to posit these questions by placing them literally inside a building.
2: Yes, and placing them in a building which not all that long ago meant so much to the community. Mm. You know, we've lost a lot of communal spaces now not just churches but all sorts of communal spaces we've lost and we haven't successfully replaced them. So there's that question of as the sort of symbolic orders change in a culture, there's these kind of in-between periods where we're trying to reinvent ourselves. I mean, one of the characters in the novel is a civil celebrant and I've always been interested in them because, you know, hardly anyone gets married in church now. They get a celebrant. Australia has an extraordinary rate of usage of them, something like now like 80% of all married couples. And the celebrant in the novel says, you know, my father was a traditionalist. You always knew the form. You always knew the right form and what to say and what to do and where to do it. And now she says we're kind of reinventing all that because with the decline of Christian faith and Christian worship, Those old spaces and those old symbols don't mean what they used to mean to us. But how do we replace them? If we're living in a church and we're surrounded by these superb stained glass windows, for example, what do we do with them? And we don't want to destroy them because they are works of art very often, and they are in the case in this novel. But they're not meaningful to us anymore. You know, we really don't want to sit and eat our muesli while looking up at a stained glass window of John the Baptist's head on a platter. You know, that's not how we want to live. Um, So the problem of renovating the church is not just a renovation problem, though it's that as well, because what do you do with all that vertical space? It's also a problem about how we live now, what's meaningful to
0: us now. And I think it's also a problem, what I really latched onto in this novel, is the idea of our first home, our primary home, our bodies and our minds and our experiences and the way that they grow and change with everything that we endure and what do you do with those? What do we do with our own history? In a way, Zoe is living in this building that's full of ghosts, I suppose you could say. All of its previous usages are still there and everything that she has been through as a person is still humming away inside of her and yet she's sort of going out. She's a relative stranger in this new community and she's trying to latch on to people or to find her own grounding. Can you tell us a little bit about that journey, about her as a person in this? new town
2: well she doesn't want to go back to being a solicitor she she works as the receptionist in a small rural hospital and she enjoys that she likes that she gets to know the community that way and she's in a kind of holding pattern while she decides what to do with this church and that you know has really got her stumped and she doesn't want to return to the city she doesn't know what to do with the church I don't want to give away too much of the plot, but she has to kind of work her way through this. Meanwhile, people keep coming into the church and the thing that they almost invariably comment on, whether they're friends or visitors or whatever, is that it's got wonderful acoustics. This is a kind of running joke in the novel in a way, that the thing that all these non-Christians love about the church are the acoustics. And eventually those acoustics are put to good use by a young friend that Zoe makes. Don't want to give that away either. (laughs) And so there's this kind of perfect construct that nobody wants anymore. Um, And I think this is so emblematic of where we are as a culture in transition. And Zoe is in transition. So both she and what the church represents are in transition and don't quite know what to do with themselves. I thought this was largely where we're at in a lot of ways. I mean, I don't know about you, but I'm a bit of a victim for grand designs. I tend to watch it quite (laughs) a lot. You see people... And they take these, they do conversions and they'll take some old barn and then they'll turn it into this palace, you know, and often they've only got one child and they they convert it into these vast grandiose spaces that say, this is who I am, Mm. you know, all this surplus space, this enormous amount of money, in effect, a secular church, a secular temple And that fascinates me. I kind of get what's going on here and I wanted to write about it.
0: Yeah, it's fascinating the way living under capitalism, I suppose, and and living in this modern world, what you buy and what you yearn for and what you seek says something about who you are and we've erected all of these quite strange monuments to ourselves. And I think Zoe is in this process of kind of trying to figure out what monument to herself she would like to present.
2: There's always the question, we shouldn't forget the question of what you can afford. She's actually lost a lot of money in the financial crisis.
0: And I suppose, you know, you mentioned the stained glass windows before and the sort of the violence of those scenes and not wanting to live with them. A recurring motif throughout the novel is of these black cockatoos. When Zoe and Nick first go to inspect the property, they see some black cockatoos, which are their favourite bird, and they see that as a good omen. And the birds seem to return to Zoe again and again, and they're almost like, a, I suppose, a guiding force throughout the book. Can you tell us about them as a a motif and writing them and how they came to you, either black cockatoos specifically?
2: Well, they're such a wonderful bird, so powerful and dramatic and imperious and funny, mm. and I needed a bird that was all of that so I wasn't going to have a sparrow or a, a New Holland honey eater or a pardalote, which is another favourite bird of mine. I mean, the black cockatoos, to put it boldly, are nature. Mm. You know, the church is culture, the cockatoos are nature. What I was aiming for was a kind of tension between nature and culture, I'm an old 80s person throughout the book but there is that kind of tension and the cockatoos keep coming in because they kind of remind us that no matter what we build or where we build it we are subject to greater forces within nature and and I suppose they're an emblem of that
0: the sort of (laughs) the impossibility of the project in a way and the fact that that is, you know, raucous and chaotic and the stuff of life, I think. It's quite joyous to see those two forces jostling together within the story itself but within the story that Zoe is attempting to tell herself about who she is now after everything that she's sort of endured. How did this come to you? How did you first conceive of this book? When did you decide this is what I need Um... to write about? the
2: trigger was the selling off of churches I got to see some of them and I thought no this doesn't work it never works why doesn't it work and then that raised a whole lot of questions about who we are in this moment what we've believed in the past what we believe now what we might believe in the future. And I started thinking about the role of religion in the culture was often very social. People maybe didn't have a strong faith, but they liked to go to church and see everybody be part of a community. And the locus of community has shifted from the church to all sorts of other places. But in many ways, it's just become privatised. You know, We have our own little privatised ideal spaces that we're constantly renovating and trying to get right. So that was, I think, the initial impulse. Where are we going as a culture? I mean, I'm interested, obviously, in the fate of ordinary the characters, but the fate of the characters is always linked to the broader culture. Mm. You can't separate the two. So that was really the origin of it. And this thing about how do we, what does home mean? What does it mean when we say a space is alive or a space is dead? Christopher Alexander believes that space is inherently alive. It's not an abstraction, you know, that there is a cosmic spirit that permeates space and the architects can either deaden it Mm -hmm. or draw it out, draw the spirit out. You know, you'll sometimes walk into a house and you feel that house is alive. And it's what you're trying to create in the space you live in. But we all do it in different ways. So my long-term interest in that But also, you know, my long-term interest in people who think that they can take the world and mould it in their own image and believe in a kind of perfectionism. Uh, I kind of admire them, I sympathise with them, but I think they're wrong. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I think that that becomes quite clear when you read the book. It's a a marvellous book. Amanda Laurie, thank you so much for joining us on Literati Glitterati today. Amanda's book is called The Conversion and it's out now through text publishing. Do pick up a copy. It's the book that stays with you and that asks big questions. I think in the clarity of the prose, it makes you do a little bit of work to stick with them and to answer them for yourself, which I really loved. You're tuned to Literati Glitterati. Uh, My name is Mel Fulton. Thank you so much for tuning in this afternoon. And thank you enormously to my two guests on the show, to Charlotte Wood, author of the fantastic book, Stoneyard Devotional. And thank you also to Amanda Laurie, who we just heard from, who was speaking about her new book, The Conversion. Next week on Literati Glitterati, we'll be hearing from Max Easton. He's going to be talking to us about rugby league football, about punk rock and hardcore, about the housing crisis and about his latest book, Paradise Estate, which I absolutely loved. That's next week. You know what to do. Literati Glitterati. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Literati Glitterati, a weekly book show that loves a good story well told. Literati Glitterati is broadcast live on R each Wednesday from midday till 1pm. Hope you've enjoyed the podcast and please feel free to keep in touch at rrr.org.au.